What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you very much, Scott, and welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans, and ahead this hour, the major stock story of the day, arm shares jumping about 17%, 18% in the chip company's trading debut, the biggest IPO in a couple of years. The first print was $56.10, about 5 bucks above where it priced last night. That values the company at just under $62 billion, and that's still down from the $64 billion that SoftBank itself had valued the company when it took full control just last month. And we have full team coverage of this IPO and its ramifications today. Leslie Picker is out at the site of the action at the NASDAQ for us. David Faber is fresh off his interview with SoftBank's Masayoshi son and ARM CEO. And Axios' Dan Primack and Bullpen Capital's Duncan Davidson are here with their first impressions and implications for the rest of the IPO market, maybe for the markets in general. Leslie, let's start with you and a sigh of relief here, I'm sure. Yeah, definitely a sigh of relief here. I mean, this one was priced at 51 at the high end of the range. It opened at 56.10. So that generated about an 11%, 12% pop at the open. And then it's gone higher from there. You can see it's currently trading around $60 per share. So if you take that and you multiply it by the total number of shares outstanding on a fully diluted basis, which includes restricted stock options, that gives you that $64 billion valuation that SoftBank had that transaction just last month where they acquired the remaining stake and arm they didn't already own from their vision fund back into SoftBank. So kind of interesting psychology there. Could be more coincidence than anything. But as we kind of look at this deal and on a price to earnings basis, this one's not coming cheap. In fact, it's quite expensive, about double that on a relative value compared to its chipmaker peers. And it's also coming in at a discount to where prior expectations had been, that $64 billion just last month. And then there were reports earlier in their year, the year that said that they would be targeting 70 billion, up to 70 billion for valuation. So definitely came below there and they were able to, as a result of some of that psychology, some of the marketing, orchestrate a decent open today, which should bode well for those other IPOs that are in the pipeline. Obviously this is an idiosyncratic situation, but you don't wanna see a deal this size go down while other IPOs are on the road because that leaves investors you know, with losses on their hands may have less of an appetite to buy by future deals. So if they're sitting nicely today, they may at least take a look at some of these other IPOs on the road. Yeah, absolutely. Leslie, thank you very much. And this may tell us as much about SoftBank as it does about ARM or tech or the IPO market. And Masayoshi Sun himself earlier today sat down in an interview with our David Faber. So David, people love to hear from Masa Sun, although the halo, you know, is not maybe what it once was. Still, he has to feel good about how this offering has gone off so far because it looked a little more dicey maybe a day or two ago. Yeah, uh, without a doubt. And you know what I think uh, I've heard, I think Leslie as well, is he they could have potentially priced actually above the range at 52. He was given that option, chose 51. Seems to have been a good decision given the aftermarket performance thus far, uh, Kelly. And of course, uh, as Leslie made clear, SoftBank still owns 90 percent of this company. So they are benefiting from that significant rise in value today, almost equaling 
again what they paid not very long ago to take their ownership stake up from what had been 75 percent to 100 percent at that 64 billion dollar uh, value. Of course, one key question from here will be, well, what do you do now, Masa? Are you potentially a seller in the future of some of that 90 percent position? Here's what he had to say. Our intent is to hold as much as possible, as long as possible. I, I wanted to keep 100 percent of arm. Uh, only reason we are having IPO and selling is because uh, uh, Arm is such an important company for the industry. Uh, I wanted to have investors uh, opportunity to participate on the upside opportunity of Arm. So Kelly, he was being generous in allowing the public to participate in the upside opportunity, which he truly believes, along with Renee Haas, of course, the company's CEO, a lot of it attached to the promise of AI, the chips that will power it, and the fact that ARM intends to be a very key component of all of those chips, certainly made by the likes of NVIDIA, for example. So uh, that is part of the growth story here. The market seems to be a believer. So, and I'm just kind of going back and looking at some of the headlines about SoftBank, David. Twilight of an Empire is one that jumps out after they had $32 billion in losses last year. We obviously know that 2022 was a terrible period for tech, for the markets, but 2023 in the first half was a very different story. Um, I'm curious how you would perceive kind of the, the financial position of SoftBank today and its need to unload any, few, any further investments as it's already pared back dramatically in an effort to raise cash. Yeah, and what it really has pared back, of course, is what was once a significant ownership in one of the greatest investments of all time, that being Alibaba. And that has helped along the way here. But there is no doubt that the Vision Fund has not performed to the extent that it was uh, thought possible or at least hoped for in terms of both the first Vision Fund at $100 billion and the second one. Obviously, we all know the problems that have taken place in the private markets and the high valuations that were paid. We know about WeWork and the mistakes that were made there, certainly uh, with SoftBank being, being its single largest sponsor. Um, also, even you know, four and a half years ago was the last time I actually sat down and talked to Masa. We were in person then. It was a different time, but he was speaking incredibly enthusiastically about his vision for the future, namely about AI. And it is interesting, Kelly, that they didn't really execute as well on that vision in terms of their... Right. Uh, investment portfolio, as you might have thought, right? I mean, ChatGPT, for example, or any number of other the, of the companies that have now come along with this such an important wave of generative AI. That said, Masa is fully on board. He believes that the investments that he's made will prove to be quite profitable in what he still believes is the future for AI that will involve it gaining general intelligence from what he said to me. It seems like he thinks it's going to be pretty soon. Yeah, listen, it is still nascent. There could be a lot more, many more chapters of this uh, SoftBank story. Uh, David, thanks so much for bringing us that interview and joining us to talk about it. David Faber. Arm is the biggest IPO in years, but how much of a bellwether is it really for the rest of the IPOs waiting in the wings? Joining me now, Dan Primack is business editor at Axios, and Duncan Davidson is a partner at Bullpen Capital. And since we were just uh, talking uh, about um, SoftBank, Dave, uh, David, I want to start with you. You're not all that impressed by what Masa Sun has been up to here or up to lately, uh, Duncan. Sorry, um, but but do you think now that this is kind of out of the way, it kind of shows that the market, okay, we cleared this hurdle, even for a, a listing that felt a little desperate. 
Well, I must say, I'm amused to hear there's now a soft bank risk in a stock. That's a new <laughs> one. But after we work, I suppose it's sensible. This company, ARM, is to smartphones what Intel is to PCs. It should be a core holding of most portfolios in tech. And so I'm actually happy this thing is public. I don't think Moss is going to sell. I think he can leverage this position to do other things, which is probably what his real plan is. Uh, I will say this, though. This IPO is normal. Goes up 10%, maybe we'll end the day 15, 18% up. That's a normal IPO, but it's not a big pop. So I think we're all waiting for next week. Insta, Instacart and um, I guess Kite, what is it? <laughs> the, the other one uh, to go public um, to really see if this is a tech story now for VCs. Yeah, I, very much, Dan, kind of what you're saying. Instacart now becomes the next one to watch here. Yeah, and Cleveo also, which is the, the other one Duncan was referring to, which maybe is arguably more important. It's a name that fewer people know because it's not a consumer name. It's marketing SaaS, but matters because you've got so many other SaaS companies which are in the pipeline watching, a lot fewer grocery delivery <laughs> companies watching. You know, Leslie uh, Picker said something interesting. She talked about how, you know, the, the fact that it did this one arm didn't, you know, get face major headwinds was important. I think that's true. In other words, I don't think arm succeeding doing this normal IPO is really tailwinds for others. But but if it was getting crushed, you know, if it was now trading, you know, down at 40 bucks a share or something, right. that would have freaked out Instacart and Clavea. Oh, for sure. And, and probably turned a lot of investors off and left everybody a little bit more cautious. All right. So it, it's Clavio, right? Clavio, <laughs> Every I'm time sorry. I, whatever Clavio. it is, Clavio, Clavio, whatever, banana, banana. So now, Dan, that we kind of know that the market can digest this uh, mega IPO, Instacart's much smaller. Clavio, I'm not sure exactly what the size is that they're looking for. Maybe Birkenstocks is out there. But do you think this entices the likes of Stripe and some others uh, to, to say maybe this is the window? I mean, it should. I mean, you've got a lot of companies. You know, I, I Databricks today, which is this privately held company, right. which touches on AI, raised a half a billion dollars today. And speaking to their CEO last night over and over saying, well, you know, why haven't you gone public? And he said, well, nobody's gone public. We're kind of he didn't say we're scared of the market, but he wants to watch others. Well, here we go. Arm today, a couple next week, Birkenstock. You know, Birkenstock, kind of like Cava, isn't the same as an AI company or a chip company, but nonetheless, it reflects that investors are willing to buy new issues. And there's an importance. I, I you know, you can't wait too long when an IPO window is open. You can end up with a drought, and you, it can go on years, as we just saw. Duncan, I was thinking about the Instacart investors. You know, the private equity investors, the private uh, markets, who gave it that thirty-nine billion dollar valuation a couple of years ago, and it's now worth nine billion. I mean, there's a lot of losses in Silicon Valley, or, or amongst these private equity firms. I have to imagine, or venture capital firms. I'm sorry, I have to imagine for not just Instacart, but maybe others whose bubbles have burst a little bit. Well, in general, though, the VCs got in much lower than a $39 billion valuation. So I think the VCs here are still, in most of these stocks, are still way above water. And they want to get liquidity. One of the problems in this era is it's taking so long to go public. You're sitting on these things well beyond what you would have done maybe 20, 25 years ago. So liquidity is good, even if it isn't a huge win. It's good to get out. Yeah, right. But that said, I guess the question I'm asking is, are these kind of muted IPOs for the public markets, Duncan, actually better for the retail investor than, you know, a hype cycle or evaluation where I mean, they could the retail investor easily in 2021 could have been the IPO customer for Instacart if they had chosen that moment to go public. So it just it's almost like we've kind of turned the tide here where um, those taking losses in a muted IPO seem to be some of the later stage private investors and not so much uh, the public. Well, look, it's no question that 
delaying IPOs and having them sell at bubble valuations is not good for the retail investor. They used to get in much earlier and make a killing on these stocks, and now they're getting in way too late. So this downturn in the valuations is great for the retail investor. And I think some of these stocks will show some of the pop we've all wished to see in tech stocks. My only caution is this. No matter what Masa says, ARM is not an AI story. <laughs> and most of the companies coming out that we see in the list that are soon to go IPO are not AI stories. It may be we don't really see the hot market again until some of the AI stocks, uh, which are, you know, brewing uh, get to go public. And I think the, the retail investor will hop on those like they're hopping on or we're hopping on NVIDIA. Let me play the portion of the interview where he, Masasun, spoke on that, saying he's all in on AI and sees a big opportunity for ARM. Take a quick listen. I believed in the future of AI and it's really now getting proved. And this is the beginning of big AI time. And uh, ARM is going to have a big role in that. And Dan, the CEO's case, who was also on our air this morning, was, you know, our chips are used in um, sort of voice assistance and all sorts of different consumer products that ultimately have some. So to Duncan's point, they're, they're stretching a little <laughs> on the narrative here. Look, that, that's his message. I spoke to the CEO this morning also. And the line he said twice to me, which is clearly the, the catchphrase they used on the roadshow, was, quote, AI runs on ARM. So, so they're absolutely playing in this, but they have to, right? Smartphone sales are down. There's huge questions about China in terms of export control, et cetera. And a lot of ARM's revenue uh, comes out of China. So, you know, the AI story, that's the one part of the kind of private uh, growth stage market. And granted, Arm is a different company. It's not a startup. But that's where you are seeing valuations go up. So, of course, they're going to play on Arm. I, I will say, as somebody who covers deals for a living, I don't remember the last time I got a press release about a funding of any sort of company that didn't <laughs> mention AI somewhere. And it does not matter. I, to be honest, I haven't looked through. I bet if you looked at the Birkenstock IPO filing, you could find it in there somewhere. Yeah, you know, walking all those miles in the data center or something in their in their Berks. Uh, gentlemen, thank you both for your instant reactions and analysis. Duncan, quick last word. I will say this. Um, NVIDIA is an AI story because big AI needs to buy gobs of NVIDIA chips and systems. ARM is not an AI story. Even like Apple talks about putting in a little smartwatch, you can now run Siri in the watch. There's an ARM core inside of there. That's not going to drive demand for ARM. That's just a feature in a device. ARM is a smartphone or device story. So let's not get confused. Just saying AI will run through it doesn't mean AI is going to drive huge growth in ARM. It won't. Fair so point. He's this. Absolutely. Duncan Davidson, Dan Primack, thank you both for joining us on this marquee day. Now, if you as an investor were hoping to get exposure through the ARM IPO, maybe not on the open, but through an ETF, you could be up for some disappointment. Let's bring in Bob Bassani with that angle of this story. Hi, Bob. Hi, Kelly. Uh, IPO and tech enthusiasts are excited about the ARM Holdings PC, PLC initial public offering, and there's very good reason. It's the first big tech IPO in more than two years. But many of the most natural long-term buyers, these are ETFs, are not going to be buyers, at least immediately. Most ETFs track indexes that have very strict requirements for inclusion. In the case of ARM, there's two broad issues. First, the largest index provider, S&P Global, which runs the S&P 500, requires that a company be domiciled in the U.S. to be included, which ARM is not. Second, many indexes require that a company float at least 10% of the stock outstanding. But ARM appears to be floating less than that, roughly 9.3% which would leave it ineligible for inclusion in other big ETFs like the Van Eck Semiconductor ETF. This is the largest semiconductor ETF. That has a 10% 
float requirement as well. One way around this problem is for the green shoe to be exercised. This is a 15% over allotment that is often allowed. That would get it almost exactly at 10%. We're waiting on word of whether that's going to happen. We don't know yet. One big potential ETF buyer is the NASDAQ 100 ETF. This is the triple Q's, 200 billion in assets, one of the biggest ETFs in the world. It's the largest non-financial companies in the NASDAQ. It has no market cap or free float limit. That's good news. And it's reconstituted in December. So watch that one for inclusion. Another candidate for inclusion, IPO ETFs, including the Renaissance Capital IPO ETF. This is a basket of the most recent IPOs. But that's got a relatively small market cap of $200 million. So this is a big test, guys, for IPOs and tech investors. It needs to be successful. The average IPO this year was up 19% on its first day of trading, just like ARM. After the first day, the average IPO down 7%. Kelly, that's why these haircuts for Clavio and Instacart, very good news for retail investors. We need some of these early ones to succeed, and that means they need to be up in the few weeks after they go public. Kelly? All right, Bob, thanks. Our Bob Bassani, we appreciate it joining us from the New York Stock Exchange. Still ahead here on the exchange, the consumer still has plenty of dry powder left to keep spending. That's the case my next guest will be making. And there's one particularly interesting trend he's seeing when it comes to student loans. Plus, Raymond James calling this restaurant stock underappreciated with best in class margins. I had not heard of this one before. Maybe you can guess it. Tweet me at Kelly CNBC. The analyst behind the call joins us to make his case next. As we go to break, here's a look across a pretty strong rally day in the markets. We haven't seen the Dow up three. 43 in some time. That's a good for a 1% increase. S&P and NASDAQ trying for their fourth positive session in five with almost similar, exactly similar percentage increases, eight tenths of a percent or so. And the Russells are leading the way up one and a quarter. Ten-year yield back below 430. The exchange is back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back. More hot inflation data today, calling into question the real strength of consumer spending lately. The producer price index jumped seven tenths last month. That was higher than estimates and its biggest gain since June of last year. Retail sales, meanwhile, up six tenths, also above estimates. But how much of this is simply higher prices? Let's discuss. Joining me now, Steve Whiting is chief investment strategist at City Private Bank and David Tinsley, a senior economist, Bank of America Institute. It's great to have you both here. Thank you. David, let me just start with you because you guys can kind of unpack this a little bit. Um, how much of the spending we've seen in recent months, broadly speaking, is just price increases? 
Well, some of it's that. In uh, retail has been boosted by gasoline prices. But in our data, when you look across the piece, you see very strong service sector spending as well. So, and when you look you know, really broadly at the sort of balance sheet of the consumer, it's in pretty good shape. So I'd say some, but certainly not all. We've talked with, spoke with your colleague Liz, who says, and there's a huge debate about this, is the consumer's kind of like excess savings or dry powder, is it running out? And we're about to face this trifecta of student loan repayments and higher gasoline prices and all, you know, higher borrowing rates. Or are we still in a better position than we might have been a few years ago, supported by real wage gains? So what do you guys see happening there? But what we're seeing is that on the deposit side, they're up about 30, 40 percent across all income cohorts. Amazing. So that looks pretty solid. On credit cards, people aren't tapping their cards relative to their limits as much as they were in 2019. Hmm. The, the utilisation rates are still lower. So, you know, in the round, we think there's dry powder still in the consumer. There are a few headwinds, student loans, as you say but uh, all manageable, I think, over the next six months or so. How does that jibe, Steve, with, with kind of your view on things and what you think is, is going on with the consumer? So look, it, it doesn't really lend itself to a complete bust or boom view. It looks like a deceleration. You know, three years ago, we had an absolute depression in services employment. And services employment rarely falls very much, even in recessions. Right, very steady. And so to get all of that back is actually helping a lot. It's actually working through some of the problems we have in the goods sector. We have uh, manufacturing recessions, trade recessions, and we're getting inventories down because of this persistent strength in services hiring. Now, the whole thing is growing half as fast as it did a year ago, and it doesn't just stop there. Mm -hmm. It'll probably continue to decelerate with some of these headwinds, uh, but it's getting us to a place where we just are not going to have that collapse that happens when you have a, a full-blown uh, you know, drop in employment at serious magnitude. More of a cyclical thing. So when you look, so jobless claims, okay, last week we thought, well, maybe distorted by you know, Labor Day holiday, they were very low. This week, again, very low. It doesn't seem like a seasonal issue. It seems like a cyclical tell. And do you think that this kind of, this ongoing rebound in services is still why? How much longer does that have to go? You know, the, the claims data, again, really high quality data. There's no samples, everything. You know, we love this data, but it's not showing the entire picture. When you take a look at job openings, have fallen by 2.6 million. Right. Uh, and again, the net pace of hiring is decelerating. So the net firing or people being able to quickly find another job, it's still painting a picture of stability overall. Do you, so, David, if, if we kind of go, OK, well, then maybe I, I can understand why a camp like Goldman's goes, OK, recession odds are down to just 15 percent in the next 12 months. I'm amazed to hear you say that credit card utilization rates aren't at the levels they were in 2019 at the same time as we've seen delinquency levels reapproaching where we were back then. And rates kind of uh, on a nominal basis are so much higher. Yeah, I mean, behind this, all of this is really the labour market strength. So when you look at the lower income part of the distribution, wage growth has been at the strongest above that of middle and higher income. So I think, you know, that's driving, in a sense, the, the ability to borrow and, and, and the spending picture. So, you know, there are corners of households, the market, where people are feeling some stress uh, vis-a-vis, uh, you know, borrowing, et cetera. But it's, it's minor, I think, really, sure. ultimately. For now. So, Steve, the final question then is it comes down to the Fed, which is not expected to hike this month. I don't know what your expectation is if there's, you know, maybe another hike in November when they start cutting. What, how does this shake out for them? So they've done a lot. And they're doing more with quantitative tightening. Yeah. Just take a look. Again, it, not only is the Fed reducing its Treasury holdings, but foreign central banks appear to be doing the same 
thing. Uh, and if you apply some lags here and the fact that employment growth is decelerating, you could say, well, 187,000 jobs, that's still too many. Well, where is it headed? Yeah. And I think if you look at next year, you're going to say the Federal Reserve is probably going to back up, back off of sort of a, a really ultra tight monetary policy. It's not going to give us zero rates again. But the whole point is they don't want to. Mm -hmm. We shouldn't actually need a collapse this few years after a deep recession. All right, gentlemen, thanks. We'll leave it there for now. Steve Whiting and David Tinsley with stocks in a better mood these days, that's for sure. Meanwhile, some marquee fast casual stocks have been under pressure ever since gasoline prices really started to jump. Shake Shack down almost 24% since August. Chipotle down almost 10% from its summer highs. But they are two of my next guest top picks, along with this one, which you may not have heard of, First Watch Restaurant Group. That was our mystery chart. Up 40% this year, it's fast casual. It focuses on brunch and it's underappreciated with best in class margins, according to my next guest. Let's bring in Brian Vaccaro, who covers restaurants for Raymond James. Brian, welcome. I mean, First Watch is Hi, there. Kelly, nice to see you. It's nice to see you, too. Is there a brand name for First Watch that I would be more familiar with? So First Watch is, is actually a little under the radar, but it's, it's the scaled leader in a category that's seen tremendous growth really over the last decade. Uh, this brunch daytime cafe category, uh, and they've been gaining a lot of share, we think, within breakfast, and some of that share gain has actually come from other sectors, other day parts, uh, like dinner on the weekend. If, if you go out and, and have a nice meal uh, and spend $60, $70, uh, I, I do think that that is stealing some share. I, I've, I've done that myself uh, every now and then. So First Watch is an interesting growth story, 10% plus unit growth, 19 to 20% store-level EBITDA margins. Um, and it, it's one to def, uh, for growth investors to definitely have on their radar. That's fascinating. Apparently, there's one uh, not too far away from here in New Jersey. I might have to check it out. First watch. All right, let's go back to some of the brands much more familiar to people, Shake Shack and Chipotle. Why do you think those stocks have struggled lately? Is it gasoline, student loans, all the things that you know we've been literally just talking about? Yeah, there's always, there's always a, a wall of worry these days to, to think about. And um, you know, sentiment towards the group, towards restaurants more broadly, uh, has really deteriorated and softened up as as certain sectors, not all, but certain sectors have slowed over the last few weeks and into the early part of September. Uh, we are seeing some pockets of softness in the casual dining sector, uh, where comps year on year are, are flatlining, if not turning slightly negative, uh, though the limited service sector is holding up still in that positive mid-single-digit plus range. And just as your two guests, I think, were, were discussing earlier a few moments ago, um, there are pockets of strength and pockets of weakness. And it is difficult to, to get a read on the underlying health of the consumer. Uh, you mentioned Chipotle. Uh, you know, Chipotle is one we've liked for a long time, uh, tremendous long-term growth history to it. Um, but Chipotle today, we believe, is still generating positive, solidly positive traffic growth, which is rare these days. Uh, within the restaurant sector uh, and has obviously a, 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 an unmatched long-term track record as it relates to new unit economics and is still, believe it or not, only about halfway uh, through its uh, North America growth curve. All right. So you're saying don't bail on these ones just yet. Again, they're still doing nicely year to date. Uh, you also like Brinker and you also like Blumen. It has an uh, activist in there now. Are those the only names in the more casual space you'd really want to be looking you know, as, as, as the, the, the macro is, is a bit murkier and we're seeing slowing comps on a year-over-year -year basis, um, I do want to make it clear that I think things are still relatively stable through the lens of multi-year 
uh, same store sales if you were to look back to 2019. So there's some variability there just on year ago comparisons. But one point uh, I, I do want to make is that you know, there's value ideas that are interesting and, and also some growth ideas. And we're really gravitating towards names with company-specific drivers mm-hmm. that can cut through the macro in our view. The two names you mentioned on the value side are Bloomin' Brands and Brinker. Uh, Bloomin' Brands has an activist. It's also a very cheap stock at about nine times earnings. Um, but there's, there's not only uh, opportunities to unlock shareholder value uh, through its Brazil business or some of its ancillary brands, um, but you also have uh, uh, potential uh, improvements on the ops uh, and, and menu front as well there. On Brinker, uh, they, are, uh, they have a new CEO uh, who's been there for about a year. And they are pulling some meaningful levers right now that we think will be able to drive outperformance hmm. at the Chili's brand over the next few, uh, say, next 12 months or so. Uh, that includes a return to more normal advertising yeah. spend levels, uh, which you, we've, we've seen in recent, uh, in recent quarters. Baby back ribs. Uh, it, 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 you make a great point about cutting through the macro with some of these plays uh, as people are, are you know, concerned or whatever they want to say about that environment. Uh, thank you so much. We really appreciate you joining us today. Thanks so much, Kelly. And thanks to Rip Show Stocks, or really a hat tip for, uh, for guessing First Watch as that mystery chart today. Coming up, arrogance and greed. That's how NYU's Oswald DeMotoran characterizes SoftBank's approach to pricing companies. He joins us in a bit to discuss. And rent inflation showing, showing no signs of slowing down last month in the Big Apple, but there might be signs of relief on the horizon. And as we head to break, take a look at the Dow heat map with the index up 336 points. Visa is the only stock in the red right now. Goldman Sachs, Caterpillar, Dow Inc. leading the way. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. (laughs) That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. (laughs) I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back. The Dow is up 363 points. The highs were just a hair below that as the Nasdaq climbs up towards a 1% gain. The S&P is up 39. And call it the success of the ARM IPO certainly doing its part to help sentiment. Meantime, check out shares of the automakers. The big three all lower with just hours until the deadline for them to reach a deal with the United Auto Workers. We'll have a lot more on that next hour. And Closing Bell Overtime will be speaking with Ford CEO Jim Farley at 4 p.m. Eastern time. You definitely don't want to miss it. Coming up, the Dow and S&P on pace for their best days since August 29th. And our strategist sees the positive momentum continuing through year end, which has him bargain hunting. And one of his picks is PayPal. Those shares 35% off their 52-week highs. That and the other names he's buying next. Welcome back. Some breaking news on Hunter Biden. Tyler Matheson with the story. Ty. Kelly, thank you very much. Federal prosecutors have indicted Hunter Biden now on three counts tied to the possession of a gun while using narcotics, specifically two counts tied to Biden filing an allegedly false form 
that he was not using drugs at the time he bought a Colt Cobra revolver in 2018. Count three is that he possessed a firearm while using a narcotic. There are also two misdemeanor tax charges pending after a plea agreement fell apart. Hunter Biden has yet to comment on this new indictment uh, out in California. Kelly, as we get more details, we'll pass them along. All right, Tyler. Thanks, Tyler Matheson. Turning back to the markets, the second half of this year so far hasn't been a great one. The S&P 500 up only 1% since July 1st. And energy, one of the few sectors nicely in the green. But my next guest says that while today's economic environment is very complicated, stocks will make a comeback into year end. And the first half laggards should continue to lead that charge. Joining me now is David Katz. He is the CIO of Matrix Asset Advisors. David, welcome. Energy is in it. Is that, that is one of the areas you're talking about? Energy has started to do really well. Uh, we think that there are other areas that are better uh, to make money than energy right now. Oil, we think, is at the high end of its trading range uh, in terms of the price. And the, while these stocks have done better, we think they're probably closer to the ceiling. There are lots of other things that have done poorly last year and have continued to do poorly this year. That's where we think the opportunities are. Stocks that are down 10 to 20 percent but have strong fundamentals and are selling at 13, 14 times earnings. Oh, is that where PayPal comes in, for example? Unfortunately, yes. (laughs) Uh, PayPal is down from, say, 300 to 350 to 60 or 70. Uh, Over that time, the business has done pretty well. The earnings have come in. The revenues have been there. They've controlled costs. There's a new CEO coming aboard. They're buying back a boatload of stock, but the stock can't get out of its own way. It's gone from about 40 times earnings to about 12 and a half times earnings. We think if you have a 12-month time horizon, there's a great likelihood this stock could be 50-plus percent higher. We think they're a relevant player in a good growth business, and they're doing all the right things. Wall Street is just really angry at them and ignoring them entirely. Sure, Medtronic, Nextera, those are some other names. You also like Goldman, I believe Morgan, uh, Blackstone maybe, BlackRock. Uh, but Goldman in particular, you think they get a little fill-up from the IPO season it looks like we're in the middle of? Well, they spoke this week and Morgan Stanley spoke this week, and both of them talked about a better 2024 pipeline. They thought the business was bottoming out, yet both stocks have done very poorly. So, again, if you have the six-plus-month time horizon, you're getting Goldman at a great price. You're getting a very good yield. We think the surprises are going to be on the upside, and the stock easily has 10 to 20 percent higher from here. Uh, Morgan, same thing. There are a couple of financials in here, um, and one of the sort of you know, worst trades has been people trying to bottom fish in the regional banks, for instance, which it doesn't sound like is what you're doing. Well, t- today we're focusing on the Goldman Morgan. We also do like the regional banks. A number of them spoke this week and their outlooks were surprisingly good. Hmm. So we've liked PNC. They talked about business being better than expected. It's a very, very healthy yield. Uh, we think that they're going to be able to navigate the commercial real estate area and you're getting a really good business at a very attractive price. So again, You've got to focus less on the next month or three months. We think six months, 12 months from now, the stocks are going to be significantly higher. If you are going to get involved with the uh, regional banks, focus on the best quality banks. We would not dip down to lower quality. That's where the risk rise. So you, you think the market overall, I mentioned that, you know, obviously we had a great first half, second half have been treading a little bit more water. But you think the, the first, you know, we start to get some momentum back. Look at the last four sessions out of five, the S&P's higher, I think. Uh, The market is schizophrenic, we know. This week, they're focusing on a soft landing and ignoring the hotter-than-expected inflation numbers. We think as we go through the the last month in the the fourth quarter of this year, the market is going to focus on a better 2024 outlook. We think there are pockets of 
very reasonable valuation, and that's going to drive the market higher. We think the things that did great in the first five months of the year are going to slow down. We like some technology here, but we just don't think it's going to have a repeat of the robust gains that it's had in the first five months of the year. And again, markets tend to be uh, volatile. You have a great period like the first five months, and you have a slowdown like the last few months, and we think it's going to lead to a better end of the year. All right, David Katz, no computers today. Uh, nope, I'm in my quarantining area of the house, unfortunately. Oh, no. Otherwise, all is well. Wait, are you quarantining from someone else, or are you are you the patient? I'm, I'm, I'm quarantining to save my house. I'm the patient today. Oh. <laughs> Flashbacks of 2020. Thank you for joining. You, you seem like you're doing all right, so we wish you well. Thanks a lot. David Katz from Matrix Asset Advisors. Still to come, rents climbing yet again in August, with the average rent in New York still above $5,000 a month. But there are signs the record highs could soon start to cool, and we will dig into that next. The flip side of that is that apartment REITs, with properties in the area like Veris and Equity Residential, are both down about 3% so far this month. We'll get more details when the exchange comes right back. Welcome back to The Exchange. Another month and another record high for Manhattan rents. New Yorkers getting no relief in August as inventory fell. But there could be signs of a top forming. Robert Frank joins us with these details. Higher than the last time we talked to you? Yes, affordable housing has always been an oxymoron in Manhattan. But now more than ever, the average rent in Manhattan now remains over $5,500 a month. Median rents in August staying at their record high from July at $4,370. That's according to new data from Douglas Elliman and Miller Samuel. Inventory also fell 16%, meaning there was less choice for renters and more leverage for those landlords that like to hike rents. There are, though, this is the good news, guys, signs that Manhattan's sky-high rents may be peaking. The number of new leases fell 14% over last year. August is usually the strongest month for rentals as families rent for back to school. This year, apartments were lingering on the market a little longer, an average of 39 days, much longer than a year ago. Brokers say landlords are choosing to renew more of their existing tenants with slight increases rather than seeking new leases with much bigger jumps. Bidding wars accounted for 11 percent of leases. Bidding wars were strongest for those two bedroom apartments. Nationally, rents ticked up slightly in August. Close to the record highs from last year, but across the country, landlords are starting to make some concessions like maybe one month of free rent. But if you look at that CPI data that we got uh, yesterday, most of that increase yet again was due to shelter costs and those high rents, shelter costs up over 7% year over year. So that's still the big driver of the CPI. And what we've often talked about and Diana has chronicled is this glut of apartment supply coming to the market. Are we expecting a lot of supply to hit the New York market or, or not? Is that one reason why it's more sticky? We're not. And, and that is the big issue. And that's why rents may not go up much, but they're probably going to stay at this elevated level for a while because there's not a new supply. The only hope for new supply is that this new Airbnb law, which mm. makes it harder to rent Airbnbs, could free up some of that inventory that was Airbnb'd out Great point. back to the full-time rental market. But again, that's maybe five or 10,000 apartments could be at the margin, but there's not a lot of new construction that's going to be rentals. The new construction are very expensive condos that those developers can make a lot of money on. Absolutely. So either those rents are going to be higher, but we also have spoken with some developers who say the cost of conversions from office is also so high and the incentives aren't great enough that that's going to bring a lot of supply online either. It's prohibitive. Changing those giant office buildings to functional apartment buildings 
is just so expensive yeah. unless prices for those buildings come way down for office buildings. And we've seen it in San Francisco, as you talked about mm-hmm. yesterday. But we haven't seen those prices for office buildings come down enough in New York to make those conversions worth it. That's a great point. Robert, thank you, as always, thank our you. Robert Frank. Coming up, the TV business almost on the brink of implosion in recent weeks amid the Disney charter spat. While in Hollywood, the writer and actor strike is still going on. The dean of valuation, Aswat Demodoran, says the media industry needs to take a hard look at the music business as a cautionary tale. He joins me next to dig into that and the big story of the day, the ARM IPO. Speaking of which, those shares are still trading just just above $60 after opening at 56, pricing at 51. The exchange will be right back. Welcome back, everybody. Arm is trading above $60, $9 above where it priced, and about $4 above where it opened today as its first day as a newly public company. SoftBank CEO Masayoshi Son telling David Faber earlier that the only reason for the IPO is he wants to give investors the opportunity to share the company's wealth. But my next guest warns about that, saying SoftBank is a hype machine that pumps prices with a combination of arrogance and greed, and that the $54.5 billion valuation for Arm is reasonable if they can, you know, hit a 40% compounded annual growth rate. So will it live up to the hype? And what will these first few days mean for IPOs coming down the pike, like Instacart and Birkenstock? Joining me now is Oswald Demodoran, professor of finance at the NYU Stern School of Business. Oswald, welcome. So it sounds like you're not in the IPO. Uh, I'm not in the ARM IPO, but I think that, I mean, this is not 2021. In 2021, I wouldn't have been surprised if ARM had gone for $100 billion. Right. There's hype, but there is a reality here, which is this is a true AI play, and it's a money-making company. It's already a company that's figured out a way to make money. So I think there is a plausible path to today's stock price. And as I said, my only red flag here, one reason I would hold back, is I'm not sure I want to do any, I want to touch anything that SoftBank has already touched. I mean, one thing we've learned over the last three or four years is SoftBank doesn't have a sure touch when it comes to building businesses. Mm-hmm. So I would want to avoid whatever SoftBank tells me to buy. Although maybe you could make well, because they're still in, in. I was going to say you can make the argument now, but they are still in control. I mean, they're only floating nine percent here. Right. I mean, I think they're they're still in control, and that 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 might be the reason I hold back is maybe if they let ARM be run by the people who built the company up, I'd, be, I'd have more confidence in the company. But um, Masasan should not be the spokesperson for the company. It should be somebody from within the company. Yeah, and we did hear from the CEO earlier today. Can expect to hear more from him going forward. Let me ask you about Instacart because we're going to go there next. Uh, valuation nine billion down from thirty nine billion. And again, in twenty twenty one, this could have been a fifty billion dollar or more exactly. listing. So, yeah. you know, you might say, well, the, its best growth days are behind it. Well, that was going to happen anyway. So, did you hey. want to get in at a fifty billion dollar valuation or get in at nine? I think the reality is online grocery retail can never be like online retail in other spaces. You're never going to get 100% of grocery retail or even, I mean, I think you'd be lucky to hit more than 20% being online. So that kind of puts a ceiling on how much growth you can get for an online grocery intermediary. And the grocery business is not a very profitable business. There's not a lot of fat to share here. So it was always a company which was bounded. In 2021, people forgot those bounds. In 2023, I'm glad to see that they're recognizing those bounds. In fact, when I look at the pricing at $9 billion, they're building in the presumption that uh, Instacart will actually lose market share of the online grocery retail business and that its stake will drop. 
which I think is realistic. And I'm glad to see reality win out here. Yeah. Do you think, just to back up for a second, that this is a, a, actually a much better IPO environment for the broad public? Or do you think IPOs in general are still something people should be really wary of? I think it, it is much healthier because I think people are asking the right business questions rather than pricing questions. Pricing questions are, what will other people pay for this? Right. <laughs> I think people are asking decent questions about businesses. And I think that's always good because I think we need companies to be put on notice that they need to build business models. Speaking of, you know, what businesses should be worth, what do you do with media? I mean, your analogy to the music industry doesn't doesn't calm my nerves. I think there's a lot of existential dread in movie and broadcasting companies now because you can see what streaming did to the music business. It devastated it. The collective revenues from music dropped by 40% between 1998 and 2015. It's come back a little, but the business has been remade. It's a very different business with the existing, the status quo pretty much gone. So if you're a movie or a broadcasting company, you're wondering, is that going to happen to us? I think the movie and broadcasting businesses are more resilient than the music business. But that said, there are lessons from the music business that might apply here. The status quo is going to get challenged. It already is. I think part of the reason you saw the meltdown in Disney's market cap over the last year is in addition to all of its company-specific problems, people are looking at the future and saying, I don't know how this business will evolve with streaming being the dominant way in which content gets out to consumers like you and I. Right. Studios imploded. Only a handful are left. One percent of musicians are 90 percent of streams, 60 percent of revenue. Personalities are bigger than I guess I got to be Taylor Swift, Oswald, or, or that's what exactly. pe that's what it's going to take in the next uh, iteration to come here. So I remember when we talked uh, a little while ago and Netflix was the only of the kind of mega cap tech stocks you were really bearish on. And this absolutely fits with kind of your warning there for some time. Um, what do you do with the rest of mega cap tech now? What would you do with NVIDIA? It's only a 35 times forward earnings. <laughs> no, I, you know, people ask me that all the time because <laughs> I have a, quite a few of those big tech companies still in my portfolio. And I tell them the truth, which is if you ask me whether I would buy them at today's prices, my answer is no. But I got lucky enough to buy them at much lower prices. Mm -hmm. And it tells you that how we treat stocks that are already in our portfolio differently even though in theory we should not, than stocks that we haven't bought yet. So at today's prices, you're paying, you know, you're paying premium prices for all of these companies. They're all great companies. Let's put that on the table. But you're paying for these companies to continue to be great, and that's often not a great investing bet because great can become just very good, and that's a negative surprise. All right, well, when you sell them, I want you to come on here and let us know, because uh, then we'll know we've got reached the next point uh, in this. Oswat, thanks so much for your generous time today. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. NYU's Oswath Demoterin. And that does it for The Exchange. Coming up next on Power Lunch, with just hours left until the deadline to avoid an auto worker strike, we'll head live to Detroit for the latest on those negotiations. Tyler is getting ready. I'll join him on the other side of this break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. 
FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 